the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I am so looking forward to my conversation with Ryan T. Anderson, Ph.D., and Alexandra DeSanctis. Their book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. The book is published by Regnery and was released just days after the decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade. We'll talk with them about that in the first segments of the second hour of today's program. So looking forward to that. Also want to give you a heads up tomorrow on the program, a conversation with Steve Mosier. He's the author of Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. That's coming up on tomorrow's program, first hour of the program. Taking a look at some of the news, um, while Vladimir Putin was increasing his hold over the Donbass region of Ukraine, and while communist dictator Xi Jinping was warning Speaker Nancy Pelosi to stay away from Taiwan, the President of the United States ate his lunch, cleaned his plate, and showed it to his staff as a sign of how well he's handling COVID. Well, it is good news. We've been praying for the uh, rapid recovery and full recovery of the president. Dr. Ashish Jha, the White House coronavirus response coordinator, told reporters on Friday afternoon the president slept well last night. He ate his breakfast and lunch fully. He actually showed me his plate, end quote. What a statement about where we can where we are rather as a nation right now. The president's uh, White House handlers are excited that the president cleaned his plate at lunch. Meanwhile, our enemies in Beijing, Moscow and Tehran are eating our lunch. So writes Gary Bauer. On our current situation, U.S. consumer confidence declined in July for the third consecutive months, dropping 2.7 percentage points since June and reaching the lowest level recorded since February of 2021. The Conference Board Consumer Price Index, it reflects consumers' business expectations for future months, stands at 95.7 points, down from last month's 98.4 percent, or points, rather. The president... um, Uh, The present, rather, situation index showed the current business expectations of consumers fell to 141.3 from 147.2 in June. The expectations index, which predicts the the, uh, shot um, uh, short term business expectations, also fell uh, going down to 65.3 compared to 65.8 percent last month. Now, we're expecting some numbers this week that will tell us whether or not we're in a, well, historically defined recession as opposed to. What we're being told is no longer a recession, but uh, that will tell us at least something of whether or not this um, recession fear and this fall in um, expectations is warranted. Well, the White House announced Tuesday that the Department of Energy will be issuing a notice to sell 20 million more barrels of oil for the Strategic Petroleum Reserve as part of the president's um, effort to bring gas prices down. Well, this makes the fifth such sale that the president has authorized. The White House continued to blame disruptions posed by Russia's invasion for the high prices while claiming that the Biden administration's actions are making a tremendous difference. 
In fact, the Department of Treasury estimates that as a result of these drawdowns, both domestically and internationally, the price of the pump for Americans is up about 40 cents per gallon, lower than it otherwise would have been, the White House said in an announcement. While gas prices are down significantly since the recent national average price of more than $5 per gallon in June, the average as of Tuesday was $4.32 compared to $3.15 from one year ago and approximately $2.39 when uh, President Biden took office in January of 2021. Republicans slammed the White House. Not surprisingly, that's what Opposite parties do. After previous sales from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, after it was uh, made known that millions of barrels were being sent to European and Asian countries, including China. The American people deserve answers as to why our emergency energy reserves are being sent to foreign adversaries like the Chinese Communist Party, comprising our uh, significant portion of our energy reserve and compromising our energy security and national security. House Energy and Commerce Committee ranking member Kathy McMorris Rogers um, said in a statement, the founder of uh, Navalier and Associates uh, warns the plan is not long term solution to addressing soaring gas prices and may, in fact, endanger the United States if we need to, because of an emergency, draw on that reserve. The White House also announced that the Department of Energy is proposing a rule change regarding how the federal government acquires oil for the strategic reserve reserve. The new rule, if adopted, would permit fixed price contracts as well as index price contracts. The current rule requires purchase prices to to be set by a price index with the price paid being based on market prices at the time of delivery. The short group principal, Stephen Shork, argues the more severe the recession is, the greater that pull on price will be. This proposal, if finalized as proposed, would encourage near-term production, promote market stability, and put the federal government in a better position to respond to future market volatility, according to the White House. We'll continue to follow that story. It was uh, long understood that people suffering from depression had a chemical imbalance in the brain, namely low serotonin uh, levels. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter jokingly known as the happy chemical as its release in the brain improves mood and regulates other bodily processes such as sleep, hunger, digestion, learning, body temperature and uh, other things. Psychiatrists have long been prescribing antidepressants to boost those levels and help the sufferer. University College London conducted a mega study specifically on the research permitting or pertaining rather to the theory of chemical imbalance in depression. Its findings are a bombshell. The main areas of serotonin research provide no consistent evidence of there being an association between serotonin and depression and no support for the hypothesis that depression is caused by lowered uh, serotonin activity or concentration. Some evidence was consistent with the possibility that long-term antidepressant use reduces serotonin concentration, end quote. In other words, depression isn't caused by a chemical imbalance, and antidepressants used to help correct that imbalance didn't help regulate or heal the depressed person. One of the study's main authors, Professor Joanna Moncrief, um, commented, It is always difficult to prove a negative, but I think we can safely say that after a vast amount of research conducted over several decades, there's no convincing evidence that depression is caused by serotonin abnormalities, particularly by lower levels or reduced activity of serotonin, 
end quote. And although this is the first formal scientific study to tackle this particular theory, an unlikely uh, person was uh, talking about this back in the early 2000s. Actor and eccentric Tom Cruise gave an interview on the Today Show in 2005 where he talked about the research he had done into the use of antidepressants. He stated, all it does is mask the problem. That's what it does. That's all it does. You're not getting to the reason why. There's no such thing as a chemical imbalance. Drugs aren't the answer. These drugs are very dangerous. They are mind-altering antipsychotic drugs. Uh, Cruz at the time was deemed a crazy person and almost lost his career over this particular stance. Today's stunning news vindicates Cruz once far-out perspective, and it only took the world's leading uh, neuroscientists 17 years to catch up rather interesting finding but certainly not the the last word you're listening to the georgine rice show quick break we'll be back you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq hey we're back you're listening to the georgine rice show coming up in the second hour a conversation with dr ryan t anderson and his co-author alexandra de sanctis tearing us apart how abortion harms everything and solves nothing the best volume on the subject I've read in all my years of pro-life work. Highly recommended. By the way, it's published by Regnery. Well, suggesting it tells a lot, a Biden tweet bragged about gas price savings, but it doesn't add up as the president is roasted for a glaring typo. Be a little generous, I'd say. Well, the president continued to brag about gas prices falling by a small amount on Twitter Monday morning to the mocking A mockery of users for American families looking for a little more breathing room. These savings matter. The president's uh, official tweet account read the tweet also included a graphic informing followers that at current prices, the average driver will spend thirty five dollars less per month for one person or seventy dollars less per month for a family with two cars than they would if gas prices stayed at their peak, end quote. Well, social media users uh, once again attacked the president for attempting to take credit for lower gas prices, while many still face near-record levels. Washington Examiner and Daily Signal contributor Nicole Russell tweeted, but I thought you had nothing to do with gas prices. Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy wrote, in other words, Americans are paying over $100 more a month per person to fill up their gas tanks than when you took office. White House Press Secretary made a similar claim about falling prices on Thursday with a video on the White House Twitter account. She likewise ignored the fact that gas prices are still $2 higher than they were when the president took office. Warning residents to prepare for the worst. A wildfire near Yosemite grows to California's largest of the year as first responders battle the punishing heat. Uh, Changing uh, pants on fire... Changing a pants on fire lie. The White House press secretary is uh, being slammed for claiming the U.S. economy isn't even in a pre-recession. So we're really defining or rather redefining everything. TikTok movement inspires moms on social media to remove photos of their kids. We talk more on that later. Pennsylvania pledge Democratic Senate candidate Fetterman uh, once uh, promised to ban fracking, which supporters Uh, Supports tens of thousands of state jobs. Fetterman, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, previously signed pledges to ban the practice in Pennsylvania and um, new fossil fuel leasing nationwide. The current lieutenant governor, Fetterman, agreed to co-sponsor the Keep It in the Ground Act, federal legislation banning new oil, gas and coal leasing on federal lands and support a complete moratorium on fracking in Pennsylvania, according to an April 2016 Facebook post. 
from Pennsylvania voters against fracking. Well, the social media post included a picture of Fetterman signing the pledge and a separate picture of his signature on the document. During his current campaign, however, he was um, has walked back his past support for anti-fossil fuel leasing policies. Partisan politics. Senator Grassley presses the Department of Justice and the FBI for transparency on the politicization of agencies and the Hunter Biden probe. Jesse Waters calls the former vice president Al Gore a climate grifter and a stick up artist. Money tightening. The Fed is preparing another mega sized rate hike, risking a deeper economic downturn and saying they caught it early. Jared Kushner reveals a cancer diagnosis in his upcoming memoir. The Biden administration is seeking to redefine recession ahead of the next economic report. The administration preemptively downplayed concerns about the state of the economy ahead of the second quarter GDP growth data in a press release set for Thursday and, according to some, sought to redefine what constitutes recession. The Daily Wire reports the United States is poised to meet that definition since the annualized economic growth rate shrank by 1.5 percent in the first quarter of this year and appears to have contracted at a 1.6% pace in the second quarter. As the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis prepares to publish an advanced estimate of second quarter growth later this week, the administration is already doing damage control. Tom Elliott says that Biden's chief gaslighter, uh, in terms of the technical definition, two negative quarters of growth is not a recession. And uh, Jackie Heinrich says, bracing for impact, even if Thursday's GDP report shows a second consecutive quarter of negative growth, you won't hear the Biden administration using that R word. The Council of Economic Advisors is redefining what a recession is. Well, China continues to threaten serious consequences if Speaker Nancy Pelosi visits Taiwan. Taiwan held widespread air raid drills on Monday as China doubled down on warnings to the U.S. against allowing the House Speaker to visit the island. Pelosi has defended her planned trip to the island, a region that China has long claimed is a sovereign territory. The Chinese foreign ministry doubled down on warnings that the trip could have serious consequences for the U.S. The Chinese side has made it clear to the U.S. on many occasions that it is firmly opposed to Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. We are fully prepared, Foreign Ministry spokesman Zhao Lijuan Uh, said on Monday, if the U.S. goes um, its own way, China will certainly take firm and forceful measures to safeguard its uh, national sovereignty and territorial integrity, and the United States should be held responsible for any serious consequences. The Associated Press weighs in, saying Pelosi has not confirmed when or if she will visit. The President Joe Biden last week told reporters the U.S. military officials believe such a trip was not a good idea. Administration officials are believed to be critical of a possible trip, both for the problematic timing and the lack of coordination with the White House. China's authoritarian ruling Communist Party considers democratic, self-ruling Taiwan its own territory to be annexed by force if necessary and regularly advises or rather advertises that threat by staging military exercises and flying warplanes into Taiwan's air defense identification zone or across the central line of the 180 degree kilometer wide Taiwan Strait. Beijing says those actions are aimed at deterring advocates of the island's formal independence and foreign allies, principally the U.S., from interfering more than 70 years after the side split amid civil war. Surveys routinely show that Taiwan's 23 million people reject China's assertions that the island is a Chinese province that is strayed and must be brought under Beijing's control. The California Oak Fire is 10 percent contained, or at least as of earlier today, But evacuations are underway. 
A 1,600-acre wildfire that started on the 22nd still raged close to Yosemite National Park on Monday, forcing thousands to evacuate and destroying surrounding nature. Democratic California Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency Saturday for Mariposa County due to the Oak Fire, which has prompted over 3,000 residents to relocate. The cause of the fire is still under investigation. The fire is spread to nearly 16,800 acres and more than 2,500 firefighters and volunteers are working on site. The latest Cal Fire report stated the firefighting resources involved uh, include a total of 281 machines, 17 helicopters, 63 hand crews. The Oak Fire burning in Mariposa County, which has prompted the evacuation of more than 6,000 people, went from zero containment on Sunday to 10% by Monday as more than 2,000 firefighters battled the, the blaze, made uh, progress, making progress overnight, according to Cal Fire. Russia aims to topple the Ukraine government, claiming a desire to free the people from an unacceptable regime. Russia's top diplomat said Moscow's overreaching goal in Ukraine is to free its people from its unacceptable regime, expressing the um, Kremlin's war aims uh, in some of the bluntest terms yet as it forces its forces plummet the country with uh, or pummel the country with artillery barrages and airstrikes. The remark from Russian's foreign minister comes amid Ukraine's efforts to resume grain exports from its Black Sea ports, something that would help ease global food shortages under a new deal tested by a Russian strike on Odessa over the weekend. We are determined to help the people of eastern Ukraine to liberate themselves from the burden of this absolutely unacceptable regime, Lavrov said at an Arab League summit in Cairo late Sunday, referring to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's government apparently suggesting that Moscow's war aims extend beyond Ukraine's industrial Donbass region in the east. Lavrov said, we will certainly help the Ukrainian people to get rid of the regime, which is absolutely anti-people and anti-historical, end quote. Well, South China Morning Post says that the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, calls the war a special military operation and has said it is aimed at demilitarizing Ukraine and rooting out dangerous nationalists. Kiev and the West Call this a baseless pretext for an aggressive land grab. Lavrov's remarks came as the Russian leadership has publicly toughened its position in the Ukraine war in recent days. Upon reflection, Dr. Fauci regrets not imposing much, much more stringent COVID restrictions on Americans. Fox News reported that the doctor argued on the Hill's rising um, uh, show that there should have been more stringent restrictions for asymptomatic people in 2020. We'll tell you more about that when we return from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, looking forward to a conversation with Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. Their latest book just recently released, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Also want to remind you that our sister station, 104.1 The Fish, is presenting Fish Fest 2022. After a long hiatus, it's back at the Salem Riverfront Park on August the 20th. See five great artists on stage. Everything you need to know about all these shows with the links to buy tickets is on our website at kpdq.com. Fish Fest is back at the Salem Riverfront Park August the 20th. Well, Dr. Anthony Fauci has uh, now say, uh, said that he regrets not imposing much, much more stringent COVID restrictions on Americans. 
Uh, he argued on the Hills Rising show that there should be should have been more stringent restrictions for asymptomatic people in 2020. On Monday, he appeared on the program to discuss the approach of the BA5 subvariant of the coronavirus. The conversation quickly turned to the past approaches to COVID-19 and whether he would have acted differently. If I knew in 2020, the doctor said, what I know now, we would do a lot differently because back then we were not sure of a number of things, Fauci said, among other things. He also said that there should have been further restrictions and mask requirements to counter the coronavirus back in 2020. Anthony Fauci implies he regrets not pushing for much, much more restrictions in response. Well, House staffers and climate change activists are arrested after staging a protest in Senator Chuck Schumer's office. The United States Capitol Police arrested six House staffers on Monday who were protesting in Senate Majority Leader's house, at least office. Law enforcement responded to the protest that took place in room 322 in the Hart Senate office building around 1115 in the morning. Six demonstrators were arrested for the D.C. Code um, uh, 22 slash 3302 unlawful entry for failing to leave the office after they were told to leave, police said. The six people who were arrested are all House staffers. Well, Democrat House staffer Aria uh, Kavalich uh, says that congressional staff is staging a peaceful sit-in in the senator's office to protest our leader's failure and inaction on climate policy and urge them to use every last negotiating tool to meet this moment. A reporter, Julia Hester, points out that USCP arrested six House staffers this afternoon for protesting inside the senator's office, demanding the majority leader restart negotiations to pass climate legislation. He's giving up, but some of us are going to live through the climate crisis, end quote. Woke policies are driving down military recruitment. American Greatness, which is a publication, says the U.S. Army has met only 40 percent of its 2022 recruiting goals. In fact, all branches of the military are facing historic resistance to their current recruiting efforts. If some solution is not found quickly, the armed forces will radically shrink or be forced to lower standards or both. Town Hall weighs in, saying the military today is no longer a kill your enemies and win wars machine that I once recognized. It has evolved into an indoctrination institution more focused on pronouns and identity politics than accomplishing the mission. It's often said the military is a reflection of society and that notion makes it stronger. Uh, but that is a fallacy. The military should not be a reflection of society. It should be made up of young men and women who want to sign to serve with the patriotic purpose of violently seeking out and destroying our enemies to win wars and protect our way of life. That's it. End quote. American conservative says that the military is undergoing a full blown cultural revolution now speaking the language of the woke left and seemingly becoming more aligned with one party. If professors it professes rather nonpartisanship while very openly taking sides on loaded political issues like abortion or the death of George Floyd, that politicization seems to have sparked a backlash in the form of fewer Americans joining a once popular institution. Currently, the military is attempting to maintain its ranks by increasing opening service uh, to as many people as possible to the point of lowering physical standards. Though consistent with America's liberal traditions, it poses questions about the professionalism of the institution. GOP leader Kevin McCarthy criticized a pilot program giving temporary IDs to those in the country illegally. The Biden administration plans to test providing temporary ID cards to unauthorized immigrants awaiting a final decision on their cases, according to two government sources familiar with the planning. Recent border crossers and other unauthorized immigrants in the U.S. often do not have IDs, making it more difficult to access housing, health care, transportation and other benefits. 
Officials are considering a pilot program to relieve some of those burdens while also incentivizing more frequent communication with law enforcement throughout the complicated court process, the sources said. Kevin McCarthy said President Joe Biden continues to implement policies that make it easier for those in the country illegally to come to the U.S. as the administration works to roll out a program of providing ID cards to migrants. During the worst border crisis in history, the administration is now handing out ID cards to make it easier to travel throughout the U.S. The House Majority Leader, excuse me, Minority Leader, told the Daily uh, Mail, this is the exact opposite of what we should be doing, McCarthy went on to add. Ghislaine Maxwell will serve twen- a 20-year sentence in a very low-security Florida jail. She's been sent to a Florida prison where she will serve her 20-year sentence for helping billionaire sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein abuse underage girls. The uh, dis- the disgraced socialite has been moved to FCI Tallahassee, a low-security prison in the sh- Sunshine State, near where she committed her crimes. The Bureau of Prisons website indicates Maxwell will be eligible for release in 2037. Maxwell's attorney requested that she serve her jail time in Danbury, Connecticut. Federal Judge Allison Nathan recommended that location, but BOP denied the request. The Tallahassee prison is an all-female institution with a wide variety of recreational activities that Maxwell will be allowed to participate in while serving her time. Meanwhile, Hulu is being slammed by Democrats for not airing their abortion ad. The Washington Post reports the Disney-backed streaming service Hulu is refusing to run political ads on central themes of Democratic midterm campaigns, including abortions, guns, and the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, prompting fury from the party candidates and leaders. The streaming service, popular among younger voters, which has a policy against running content deemed controversial, is like other digital providers, in not being uh, bound by the Communications Act of 1934, a law that requires broadcast television networks to provide politicians equal access to the airwaves. The Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and Democratic Governors Association tried to purchase joint ads on abortion and guns with Hulu earlier this month, along with identical placements on a Disney-affiliated ABC affiliate in Philadelphia and the company's cable sports channel ESPN. The Hulu ads never ran while the others did. A person familiar with Hulu's policies who spoke on condition of anonymity to talk about internal matters said that the company does not publicly disclose its advertising guidelines, but that they prohibit advertising that takes a a position on a controversial issue, regardless of whether it is a political ad. The ads are reviewed on a case by case basis with edits sometimes recommended to the advertisers. The Hill says this is not the first time Democrats have run into the issue of Hulu rejecting ads about abortion. Representative Carol Bordeaux uh, slammed the platform in May for rejecting her ad about the issue. Hulu also rejected uh, an ad from New York uh, Democrat congressional candidate Siraj Patel uh, that mentioned abortion rights, Jezebel reported. The platform reportedly asked the campaign to remove at least one of the three sensitive issues mentioned, including abortion, climate change and Gun laws. They declined. It didn't run. If the COVID-19 pandemic proved anything, it proved that the United States is far too dependent on communist China for just about everything. When we needed masks and personal protection equipment to fight the virus, we quickly discovered that virtually all of it was made in China. We discovered that many of our medicines come from China. 
that the problem of Chinese market manipulation and influence isn't confined to what's made in China. It turns out that communist Chinese companies are also buying massive amounts of U.S. farmland. And the growing number of acquisitions is happening while Biden sleeps. During the Bush years, communist China bought fewer than 10 U.S. farms annually. That figure more than doubled during the Obama-Biden era. In 2013, the communist Chinese spent $4.7 billion to take over Smithfield Foods. Last year, Texas officials took action to prevent a Chinese billionaire from, with connections to the Chinese Communist Party from connecting a wind farm to the state's energy grid. The land he controls also happens to be near Laughlin Air Base. One year ago, uh, yesterday, Politico reported that communist China controlled at least 192,000 acres of American farmland and that Beijing's agriculture and, uh, agricultural investments in other nations had grown more than tenfold since 2009. Most recently, communist Chinese companies have bought several farms in North Dakota that are just minutes away from a U.S. military base that's home of some of the country's most sophisticated military drone technology. These purchases are causing concerned citizens and congressional Republicans to speak out. There is a government agency, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, that's supposed to examine the dealings of foreign corporations in the U.S. for national security concerns. Some will argue the CFIUS is primarily focused on technology transfers, not agriculture. Well, that's precisely the point. Once again, we're not adjusting to face emerging challenges. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Back, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, a conversation with Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and his co-author, Alexandra DeSanctis. Their book, just recently released, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Also, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Steve Mosier. He's the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. That's coming up on Thursday. Well, the Department of Justice has launched an investigation into the actions of the Professional Golfers Association, also known as the PGA, the um, actions they've taken against the new Saudi-backed LIV International Golf Series, according to a report by the Wall Street Journal. The Department of Justice is probing whether actions taken by taken rather by the PGA to prevent playing players from going to the rival league amount to anti-competitive behavior. The PGA Tour has suspended players who have opted to play in the eight-week LIV series, which uh, prompted LIV chairman Greg Norman to change the tour with uh, running an illegal monopoly. This was not unexpected, a PGA Tour spokesman told the journal. We went through this in 1994, and we're confident in a similar outcome. Noting that the Federal Trade Commission investigated the PGA over players' rights to play in non-PGA events, a probe the FTC dropped the following year. Well, last week, two more PGA uh, players uh, jumped to the Saudi-backed uh, upstart league, Charles Howell the third. Charles Howell III, reminds me of Gilligan's Island. Anyway, 43, who hasn't won a tournament since 2018. And Jason uh, Kokrak of 37, who won twice in 2021, announced that they were bailing to join the LIV Golf International Series. The two U.S. players joined um, others. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump, who owns numerous golf courses around the world, jumped into the fray over the rival league. Uh, which has lured top golfers like uh, Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, Brooks uh, Kopeka, and uh, 
others with hundreds of millions of dollars luring them away from the PGA. All of those golfers that remain loyal to the very disloyal PGA in all of its different forms will pay a big price when the inevitable merger with LIV comes and you get nothing but a big thank you from PGA officials who are making millions of dollars a year, Trump wrote on social media. If you don't take the money now, you will get nothing after the merger takes place and only uh, say how smart the original signees were. Good luck to all and congratulations to really talented Cam Smith on his incredible win. Well, the back and forth will continue and we'll follow the story to see who ultimately wins this latest There's still no headway on the SCOTUS uh, leak probe, the investigation into the unprecedented leak of the Supreme Court's draft decision on to overturn Roe versus Wade, a leak that supposedly so incensed Chief Justice John Roberts that he vowed to find the culprit has yet to name any individual. In fact, there are questions as to whether the investigation is still ongoing. The field of possible individuals who had access to the draft decision is pretty small. So after nearly three months, why is the leaker still a mystery? Meanwhile, much of the mainstream media has conspicuously ignored the story, treating it as irrelevant because it was information they wanted and exploited, despite the fact that it initially spilled much ink speculating as to the source and the motive behind the unprecedented leak. As for Roberts, at the very least, he should acknowledge whether or not the investigation is still proceeding, and if it uh, has ended. Ended, he should publicly divulge what has been discovered and who the guilty party is. Keeping his or her identity secret would only make the issue worse. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer exposed Democrats as the pro-abortion only party. Uh, Democrats have long couched their position on abortion as being primarily concerned with protecting choice rather than promoting the termination of a pregnancy. However, thanks to the recent actions taken by Michigan's uh, Democrat governor, the choice masquerade has slipped, revealing a party that is ardently pro-abortion. Last week, Governor Gretchen uh, Whitmer vetoed several items in the state's budget. And those um, vetoes clearly demonstrate that Whitmer does not believe in supporting a woman's right to choose life. She vetoed $20 million in funding for pregnancy assistance programs, maternity homes and adoption credits. In doing so, she revealed that abortion is the only choice uh, uh, that she and others see as deserving of government assistance. Her spokesman defended her action by echoing Senator Elizabeth Warren's dubious claim, stating uh, Whitmer cannot support aspects of a bill that sends millions of taxpayer dollars to fake health centers that intentionally withhold information from women about their health, bodies and full reproductive freedom. All falsehoods, by the way. Of course, the reason for this smear has everything to do with the fact that Democrats only support abortion as the option. Republicans um, field more than 100 Hispanic candidates for the U.S. House of Representatives in yet another sign that a significant number of Hispanics are moving to the Republican Party. The GOP is now fielding 102 Hispanic candidates for House races this fall. With a surprise special election of Congresswoman Myra Flores of Texas a few weeks ago, Republicans are hopeful to seeing... uh, their efforts to engage Hispanic communities paying off. One of the biggest ironies of this uh, shifting political allegiance is due to the president's open borders policy, which has proven increasingly unpopular, particularly among Hispanics. Indeed, recent polling has found that the Biden's popularity among Hispanic voters is lower than among the general American population, with 54 percent of Hispanics now disfavoring the president, the highest disfavor rating among any demographic group. All this has Republicans anticipating a red wave come November. 
I would caution against being too optimistic. Team Biden has uh, gone into recession denial. And according to a whistleblower, Hunter Biden uh, evidence was wrongly labeled disinformation by the FBI. Chuck Grassley alleges a widespread effort in the FBI and Department of Justice to downplay negative information about the president's son. A new HHS rule would force insurers to pay for children's sex changes. And the Dallas airport shooter has a lengthy criminal record. Senator Chuck Schumer stripped an anti-China security provision from the major semiconductor bill and home price growth cooled in May for the second straight month. The feds paid an LGBT magazine $77,000 to advertise for the Minnesota National Guard. And Canada has joined the Netherlands in declaring a climate crazed war on farmers. We'll see if there's an uprising there, as we've seen elsewhere around the world. On this day in history, 1775, the Continental Congress establishes a post office and appoints Benjamin Franklin as its postmaster general. 1908, U.S. Attorney General Charles Bonaparte orders the creation of a force of special agents that was a forerunner of the FBI. 1953, Fidel Castro begins his result, uh, revolt rather, against Cuban President Batista with an unsuccessful attack on an army barracks in eastern Cuba. Castro would oust Batista in 1959. 1990, President George Herbert Walker Bush signs the Americans with Disabilities Act. 2002, the Republican-led House votes 295 to 132 to create an enormous Department of Homeland Security and the biggest government reorganization in decades. 2006, in a dramatic turnaround from her first murder trial, Andrea Yates is found not guilty by reason of insanity by a Houston jury in the bathtub drownings of her five children. She is committed to a state mental hospital. 2016, Hillary Clinton becomes the first woman to be nominated for president by a major political party at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. And finally, 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court sides with the Trump administration in lifting a freeze backed by a lower court that had halted plans to use $2.5 billion in Pentagon funds for border wall construction. Well, the Department of Health and Human Services announced a new rule on Monday that would force insurance providers to pay for breast removal and other transgender surgeries, including for minors. The proposed rule change by the federal agency concerns Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, popularly known as Obamacare, the section of the law that prohibits discrimination in health programs based on race, color, national origin, sex, age, or disability. In a conference call with reporters, Melanie Fonts Rainier Uh, Acting director of the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services said that under the proposed changes, the definition of discrimination based on sex would be expanded to include gender identity, sexual orientation and abortion. Uh, Chiquita Brooks Lashur, administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, added that the new rules would promote health equity and contain provisions for medically necessary care. Uh, This work will help eliminate avoidable differences in health outcomes experienced by those who are underserved and provide the care and support that people need to thrive. Interestingly, there is a a, a wave of medical professionals and uh, those in the uh, psychiatric fields that believe uh, child sex change surgeries and even some drugs is a form of abuse for which those who engage in the procedures should ultimately be held responsible Well, Congress and the Biden administration are gearing up uh, a bloated, creating helpful incentives to produce semiconductors for America Act. 
But the Chips for America Act runs the real risk of chipping away at America's economic freedom and competitiveness rather than enhancing it. The Senate scheduled this week to vote on the bill, whose price tag has soared to $250 billion from the initial $76 billion. The legislation does little to counter the economic change, uh, challenge rather posed by China and the Chinese Communist Party, but spends billions of dollars on corporate handouts to tech companies and more funding for federal agencies. Despite a handful of useful foreign policy and security provisions, the eye-popping, expensive and expansive legislation would hand out $250 billion with few firewalls to keep those funds from helping China. And it bluntly disregards the fact that inflation, which has been fueled by the administration's out-of-pocket spending, has topped 9%. To be clear, the U.S. is in a long-term struggle with the Chinese Communist Party. It's the most critical and consequential international challenge the U.S. faces. However, the Chips for America Act is not the way to address this serious issue, either effectively or practically. Practically, Let's see, I don't have a lot of time, uh, so what will I leave out? Well, everything else. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. And when we return, a conversation with Ryan T. Anderson, Ph.D., and Alexandra DeSanctis on their book, Tearing Us Apart. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, as we all know by now, Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Many of us still marvel that it happened in our lifetimes. It does change things, but it does also present for us significant challenges. Well, just in time for the Supreme Court's official overruling of Roe versus Wade, pro-life scholar Ryan T. Anderson and pro-life journalist Alexandra DeSanctis released the ultimate guide, and I use that word deliberately, the ultimate guide to the pro-life policy issue titled Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is captivating. It reframes the ongoing debate in the current climate with the truth. And this um, that this 50, uh, nearly 50 years experiment uh, with uh, unlimited abortion in America has harmed everyone, even its most passionate proponents. Tearing Us Apart is a comprehensive guide. It's made for everyone because the Supreme Court decision affected everyone all of our lives. Ryan T. Anderson is a Ph.D., the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. He is the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment, and Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. He's a graduate of Princeton and Notre Dame. He is the St. John Paul II Teaching Fellow in Social Thought at the University of Dallas. He lives on a small family farm in Virginia with his wife and their three children. Alexandra DeSanctis is visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, is a staff writer at National Review, and is widely published journalist covering politics, abortion, the pro-life movement, elections, and religion. She, too, is a graduate of Notre Dame and a former William F. Buckley Jr. Fellow in political journalism at the National Review Institute. She lives in Northern Virginia with her husband, and we are delighted to have both of you with us today. Welcome. Great to be with you. having us. This is such a significant moment because while Roe versus Wade has been overturned and the decision making on the subject of abortion has been returned to the people, the nation is grappling with how to move forward. And for many pro-lifers in particular, 
Uh, the challenge for us is to rethink the, the direction that we ought to go. Let's begin, as you do in the, the book, uh, talking about the major harm that abortion uh, produces. It, you might assume your first chapter is titled Abortion Harms the Unborn Child. You might assume that we could at all at least agree on that point. But in 21st century America, in post-Roe America, we don't even agree largely on that point. So let's begin there. Sure thing. I mean, so unfortunately, in 21st century America, there are science deniers. There are people who deny the basic scientific reality that the entity in the womb is an unborn human being. There are also still in 21st century America, equality deniers, people who deny that all human beings are created equal and endowed by their creator with a right to life. Um, So the the, the more sophisticated pro-choice activists will concede the biological point, right? They don't want to be science deniers. So they'll say, yes, it is an unborn human being, but then they will deny the equality point. And they say, well, but it's not equal to us. It's not yet a moral person. This is the Peter Singer style um, arguments that you get from, you know, one of the, form, the, the professors at my alma mater at Princeton. Um, they can't affirm the declaration. They don't really believe that all human beings are created equal and endowed by their creator with an inalienable right to life. And that's where we are in 21st century America, right? People either denying the science about the unborn child or the morality, the equality. And what Alexandra and I do in that very first chapter of the book is we just marshal the evidence. We go through the science that shows that it's a human being. We go through the philosophy um, that demonstrates that it should be treated equal because that unborn human being is our equal. And then we look at the politics of the law, why it's not an overreach of the government to protect the natural right to life of every human being, born and unborn. Would you like to comment on that as well, Alexandra? Well, I think Ryan covered it uh, pretty pretty successfully there. But uh, the last point that we, we do cover in that chapter that I think is important to note is um, kind of the, the way in which abortion supporters claim that even if an unborn child is uh, a, a human person or a human being and a, a human person, somehow um, a mother's right to her own body or a woman's right to her own body trumps the child's right to life. And this is just the wrong framework, right? We should be thinking about the duties that parents have and a mother has and a father has to care for their children. Not This is not a competition of rights. And, and the fact that a child is, has come into being inside his or her mother is not licensed to kill that child. It's a, a requirement to care for him. Interestingly, we have come to accept the notion, and I'm speaking broadly of the culture, that women need abortion to be equal and empowered. And you argue in the book that neither thing has been accomplished. Rather, there has been harm that you outline in detail uh, as a consequent. Talk, talk a bit about that claim that uh, in order for women to be equal to, to men in our culture uh, and empowered in our culture, she has to have the freedom to destroy uh, the child developing in her in utero and how that accomplishes exactly the opposite. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a pervasive claim. I think this is the, the predominant argument in favor of abortion, and it, it's so prominent even that the Supreme Court repeated this very idea in its decision in, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, essentially upholding the, the Roe v. Wade decision. The court said we can't overturn Roe, at least in part because women have come to rely on abortion. Women can't participate in the, the social or economic life of our nation unless they have abortion as part of helping them order their reproductive lives. And this is a a really damaging notion for women um, for a number of reasons, you know, not least of which is that abortion actually harms women. Um, But the idea of abortion harms women too, right? The notion that there's something dysfunctional or disordered about the female body, about pregnancy, about, you know, the female mode of reproduction 
this takes the male body as the norm and as the ideal and treats women as though there's something wrong with them or as though to kind of participate in a man's world, women have to just get rid of whatever the the consequences might be of sex and and act as though they were never pregnant uh, in order to be able to kind of compete or be on equal footing with men. We're told that um, abortion is first and foremost a matter of female autonomy, that it is a benefit to her. And again, in the book, you go in great detail. And I, I've been in the pro-life movement for decades. This is the best I've ever read on the subject. But you go into detail about the the, the cost and the um, the tremendous message it sends to a woman to suggest that she must fight against, she must reject uh, her own offspring in order to pursue her own interests. And the, the tremendous toll that takes certainly on her, but for the broader culture, the, the father, the broader family and so on. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things that we and, and first, you, uh, thank you for saying um, that um, Alexander and I worked hard to try to make this um, a very clear, compassionate and persuasive compiling of all of the evidence, all of the arguments. Uh, and so it's gratifying to hear you um, say that about the book. And uh, what we wanted to show is that there's a better way of understanding what um, women's equality should look like. Um, that what we got for the past 49 and a half years, a, a version of equality that says in order to be equal, you have to deny your most distinctively feminine attributes, right? The, 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 the God-given blessing that you can carry a child in your own womb, that to be equal to men, you have to deny that. You have to either sterilize your body or kill your offspring. That's a false vision of equality. And a true vision of equality, it's a colleague of ours at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Erica Bakiaki, who talked about there's an asymmetrical nature to human reproduction. And true equality takes that asymmetry seriously. Rather than trying to force women to live as if defective men, it says the the female way of being human is equal to the male way of being human. And we can structure our laws. We can structure our marketplaces. We can structure our education system, including higher education, in ways that take both ways of being human seriously. One of the things that you argue in the book, uh, post-abortion, that women risk emotional and psychological damage. We're being told in the broader culture that there is no fallout. This is such a benefit. It's such a relief. It opens such a broad uh, set of options for a woman who has chosen to reject her child in favor of her own autonomy, that there is no emotional or psychological damage. And women who uh, who dare to speak up. Um, are simply denied, um, first of all, being heard and that they exist. Yeah, this is a really a damaging aspect, I think, of the pro-abortion rhetoric, right? Because the, the argument now for abortion is we have to celebrate this. This is a social good. It's not We don't talk about it as safe, legal, and rare anymore. We're supposed to celebrate abortion and, and act as though it's always this wonderful solution for women. But the fact is that's actually not most women's experience of abortion. We know uh, from statistics that most women choose abortion because they feel like it's their only option. They're not choosing it because they think it's great or a perfect solution. They're choosing it because they're, they're desperate, essentially, or they're not get, you know, getting support from the father of the child. They're not getting support from their own family. And we know that after the fact, a lot of women do suffer, like you mentioned, from psychological after effects, whether it's you know, uh, guilt, regret, depression, anxiety, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, even suicide. Uh, at elevated rates after having had an abortion. And these women are, are simply ignored or even attacked uh, when they, they share their experiences because we're all supposed to believe that abortion is this wonderful solution. You also write about the fact that abortion harms the family, 
the relationship between a mother and a father, the extended family, and so on. Does that make a difference when we're talking about the autonomy of a single woman being able to determine her own future? Well, yes. I mean, what, what many women report is that the reason they feel constrained, uh, pressured, unable to carry the child into the world, but forced by circumstances to think that abortion is their least bad option is precisely because they don't have the support of a marital partner, an extended family. Um, uh, a really interesting uh, statistic is you are a child um, uh, conceived inside of marriage. You have a 4% chance of dying by abortion. If you were a child conceived outside of marriage, you have a 40% chance of dying by abortion. Uh, another way of putting uh, the statistic is that um, of all women who um, seek abortion, only 14% of them are married. By contrast, 86% of women who have abortions are unmarried. Marriage is the best protector of the unborn uh, because what marriage does, it, it ensures that that man is committed to that woman before children are brought into the world. Uh, anytime you're contemplating an abortion, a child has already been brought into the world. The only question is, will that child be able to exit the womb and you know, enter the, the, the visible world to the naked eye? Marriage is the best protector of unborn children. It's also an institution that really helps um, uh, uh, allow mothers to care for their children and to bring them um, into the next stage of their, of their lives. We're talking this afternoon uh, with Ryan Alexander and Alexandra uh, excuse me, Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are the co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is a must read in this post-war era, whether you are pro-abortion or pro-life, um, I would highly recommend it. We're going to take a quick break. We will return in a moment and continue our conversation. So do please stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSantis. They are co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. At the time the book was being written and uh, just about to be released, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. It could not be more timely, giving us a perspective on where we go from here. Uh, and I so appreciate the uh, the effort that they put into writing uh, this uh, manual, I would say, for moving forward. Uh, let me ask you about the decision the Supreme Court made. At the time, as I mentioned, you were writing this book. It wasn't clear which direction the court was going to go. They obviously overturned Roe versus Wade, and there's been a lot of discussion since about what the Constitution actually says about abortion. Those who support uh, abortion rights throughout uh, a pregnancy believe that there is a constitutional right because the Supreme Court said there was. Others who have recognized that there is no constitutional right rejoice that they finally got it right. Your thoughts on the decision that was made by the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, sure, so there's nothing. Court... You can take it, Ryan. <laughs> so, okay. I was going to say there's nothing in the Constitution that even remotely could be construed. Uh, to protect our right to choose to kill an unborn human being. Uh, whether it was the original Roe v. Wade decision that said it was a privacy right, or then the Casey decision that said it was a liberty right, um, or then you know, the, 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 the hope for academic argument was that it was an equality right. This was something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, had embraced later in life and many academic defenders of abortion. So well, you know, whether it's privacy, liberty, or equality, all of those rights, those are real rights, but they all have limits. And neither privacy nor liberty 
nor um, equality justifies killing another innocent human being. And so our Constitution, uh, rightly understood, has never protected a right to abortion. The Supreme Court simply got it wrong 49 and a half years ago. It repeated the error um, uh, 30 years ago in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And all the court has done in the Dobbs case is admitted its mistake and overturned Roe and Casey. Now, there are some pro-life scholars, and, and Alexander and I are sympathetic to this argument, although we think you know more research needs to be done and the current Supreme Court isn't there yet, that argue that rightly understood the 14th Amendment to our Constitution, which prohibits any state from denying equal protection of the law to any person, that that should include the unborn uh, human person. Uh, I don't think the current court, uh, the votes simply aren't there, which means that in the meantime, we need to pass laws at the state level protecting unborn babies. We need to pass laws at the federal level. Uh, we need to work to either have a constitutional amendment or to have justices that interpret the 14th Amendment that way, because ultimately we can't be half uh, abortion, half uh, pro-life in the same way that we couldn't be half slave, half free. As Lincoln taught us, a house divided cannot stand. So eventually we need to come to a national But we're going to start by doing this state by state, right? We're not there yet. So we need to be um, making progress at the state level uh, today. You write in the book, Tearing Us Apart, how the pro-life community can respond to our current uh, situation. And we'll perhaps get into that a bit later, but it's an important part of the book. Uh, but but let me ask you, um, the damage that has been done uh, to the medical profession in this nearly 50 years of abortion on de- demand before Roe versus Wade, of course, abortion was legal in some places, including my home state, regrettably, my home state of Oregon and other uh, other states. But what has abortion on demand uh, done to the medical profession in terms of perverting its primary purpose and reducing the unborn to something less than worthy of the kind of medical attention that one presumed the oath required uh, preserving. Yeah, so the, the problem, of course, with abortion is that it's not actually a health care procedure, right? It's a procedure that kills an innocent human being. There are two patients involved in every abortion, there are two human beings there, the mother and the child, and abortion targets one of those human beings for death. And it's not medically necessary. It doesn't cure any disease. It doesn't solve any ailment. It doesn't treat any problem. It just kills a child because a woman doesn't want to be pregnant for whatever reason. And so at that point, once you have a, a country where this is accepted as a, a form of healthcare and where some number of doctors are willing to perform this procedure, even though it's not medically necessary, uh, that perverts our understanding of what healthcare is, and it perverts our understanding of what a doctor is. So now, instead of being a, a medical professional who's using his talents uh, to cure and heal, a, a doctor becomes a, essentially a technician for hire who's using the tools of his trade to to kill. Um, and so that that has um, very unfortunate downstream effects on on all of our med- our uh, medical field. You know, it's rather interesting in the book, you offer some examples of medical professionals who practiced abortion um, some uh, for many, many years before coming to the realization that they are destroying a human body. It's it's difficult to imagine that you couldn't uh, that you would be involved in the practice and not recognize that until there's an epiphany at some point. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, how some of these medical professionals professionals who have had an about face? Uh, after having performed abortion for a long period of time and what the mitigating circumstance is that reverses their perspective on what they have known from a technical and medical standpoint all along. Sure. I mean, perhaps the most famous example is Bernard uh, Nathanson, yes. who is you know, one of the founders of NARAL Pro-Choice. 
um, you know, one of the largest uh, abortion activist groups uh, and abortion uh, providers uh, in the country. And um, I think Bernard Nathanson himself performed several hundred, if not thousands, abortions. He also oversaw the performing of several thousand abortions and clinics that he oversaw. Um, I don't remember right now what the exact catalyst was um, in his case. I know one of the other stories that we tell in the book uh, was an abortionist um, whose daughter tragically yes. died. And then when he returned to work and he's in the middle of performing an abortion, you know, he kind of breaks down. He realizes, I just killed someone else's child. Um, and this was after having spent a couple months off mourning the loss of his own child. Um, which is simply to say that, you know, there's a law written on the heart. Um, people know the truth, especially the, the abortionist, uh, because, you know, they, they, they physically, they see the unborn child that they, uh, in some instances, are literally tearing apart limb by limb. Um, and then something needs to prick their conscience. Right? It, it, it's, it's not enough just to know the facts. There also then, it seems, needs to be something that alivens them, awakens them, not just to a fact, but also to a value, to a moral norm, to a moral truth. Um, and, you know, sometimes it, a religious conversion, sometimes the religious conversion comes second, right? They first are converted to the pro-life cause, and then they start asking deeper questions. Well, what is it about life that explains the dignity and the sanctity? And then they arrive uh, at the conclusion of God. But, you know, every individual is unique, and so no two stories are going to be the same, um, how has a, a legal abortion harmed our politics and the rule of law? Well, there, there's quite a bit to unpack there. Some of the, the main points we make in the book, I'll, I'll focus on, on one uh, main one, I guess, is the way that uh, the legalization of abortion has really broken down our uh, our political parties, and, and in particular, the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, before Roe was decided, there was such a thing as a pro-life Democrat. Um, a huge number of Democratic politicians consider themselves pro-life, even, you know, voted pro-life. Joe Biden, even right after Roe v. Wade himself, voted uh, in favor of a bill that would have essentially undone what had happened in Roe. And we know kind of where he ended up. So um, there's been a, a big change on this in the Democratic Party. And I think we're all worse off because we have a, a, one of our two major political parties uh, that embraces abortion on demand for any reason, so much so that, uh, you know, you have Democratic presidential candidates now telling pro-lifers not to vote for them uh, because that's how how uh, committed they are to abortion on demand, um, even though most Democrats, most Democratic voters are not where the party is on this issue at all. Only about 18 um, percent of Democratic voters support abortion on demand until birth. And yet the party has, has fully embraced this um, this position. And it, I think we're, we're all worse off because of this. We'd be a much better country if, if voters had a meaningful choice between two political parties, neither of which was, was committed to this kind of injustice. Mm -hmm. uh, one example in a speech at the NAACP annual convention in Atlanta uh, earlier this month, the vice president uh, compared pro-lifers in the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs uh, to the slaver, a slave owner of the Old South. Uh, she said our country has a history of claiming ownership over human bodies. Uh, her historical reference was accurate, but the analogy was completely reversed. Uh, again, an example of a misunderstanding of what abortion on demand actually is. She got it exactly wrong. Yes. I mean, imagine the, the claim, you know, if you don't like slavery, don't own a slave. Or the claim, I'm personally opposed to slavery but politically or publicly, I'm in favor of your choice 
to have us please. I mean, that's what's at stake when someone says, oh, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I'm, you know, in favor of choice. Or if you don't like abortion, don't don't have an abortion. Um, the idea that um, the, the decide in this debate that's in favor of protecting the right to life of the unborn child is actually the analog to um, the slave owner is just ludicrous. And there have been a variety of academics trying to claim that the 13th Amendment um, is actually the, the justification for uh, abortion. Um, and they just seem utterly unwilling to acknowledge that there's already a moral relationship that has taken place. There's already a relationship between that mother and that child. And it's not, you know, involuntary servitude to say that no one, including mothers, can kill their own, uh, can kill anyone, right? I mean, it's one thing to say we shouldn't kill strangers. It's another thing to say mothers shouldn't kill their own children. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick uh, a quick break. Again, we're talking about uh, the fabulous book that should be in your library if you would like to be effective during this season, post-Roe, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. My guests, Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is a must read and I would highly recommend it. Uh, on the subject of abortion in America post-Roe. They cover how abortion harms children, how it harms women and their families, uh, how it harms equality and choice, one of the uh, champions of abortion on demand, uh, how it harms medicine and the rule of law, politics, uh, and the media and popular culture, and importantly, uh, what the pro-life movement should do next, which is precisely the question I want to put to our guests now. Given the situation we find ourselves in, I think many folks thought once Roe versus Wade is overturned, our work is done. We recognize now that that is not the case. What should the pro-life movement do next? Well, we talk about this a bit in our in our conclusion. Well, at length yes. in our conclusion, and we don't give... Um, too many specific prescriptions, but uh, the main thing we call for is, first of all, charity among pro-lifers and, and prudence as we disagree and discern what the next right steps are, right? Because what's, what's possible in one state is not always going to be possible somewhere else. There are a number of states at this point that have almost total protections for unborn children from the moment of conception. And there are a lot of states where, unfortunately, those laws just aren't politically feasible right now. And so there has to be some kind of room for, for incrementalism and for understanding that we have to change hearts and minds, even as we push for more and more protective laws. Um, So that would be, I think, a major part of the strategy. I know that you write about pregnancy resource centers. They have been the subject of uh, violence and opposition of late since the uh, early leak of um, what was likely to be the overturn of Roe versus Wade. What do you say about these pro-life centers that in many cases outnumber abortion clinics across the country? Uh, and the value that they and the role that they will play moving forward in this post-Roe era. These pregnancy resource centers um, are a godsend to thousands of women, uh, women who don't want abortion, women who want to bring their children um, out of the womb and into the world. And they get no assistance from people who claim to be pro-choice. I mean, I think the attacks that we've seen of pregnancy resource centers really put to lie the claim that the other side is pro-choice. The other side, unfortunately, the activists on the other side is very much pro-abortion, right? That's what, that's the choice that Planned Parenthood will help you with. They won't actually help you if you're planning to be a parent and you have 
an unborn child in your womb who you want to uh, bring to term. The pregnancy resource centers do that. Um, and they exist merely to serve those women who voluntarily come to them, seeking their assistance. And that's why it's so utterly grotesque, if not downright satanic, that we've seen the attacks on them over the past several weeks and several months since the opinion was leaked. Uh, and, and I think it's also particularly um, uh, um, just unacceptable how unwilling law enforcement has been to go after the people perpetrating these crimes uh, and really you know, protecting the rights, the freedom, the safety of these pregnancy resource centers to minister uh, to women who are seeking their assistance. In the book, Tearing Us Apart, you make the point that abortion is more than a religious issue. But what would you say to those who argue that it's Christian to support women's right to abortion? We're hearing that a lot from lawmakers, but we might hear it a little closer to home as well. Well, I find this argument very absurd because it usually comes from the same people who, who try to claim that being opposed to abortion is just uh, forcing our religion on others. And they, they're very opposed to that. But then suddenly they also want to have it both ways and, and argue that uh, supporting abortion is Christian. So there's clearly a double standard here. But uh, more to the point, perhaps it's, of course, not Christian to support killing innocent human beings. Now, it, it is Christian to support women in difficult circumstances who are dealing with an unplanned pregnancy, who need help. Uh, and, and support as they, they parent or, uh, you know, as they welcome their child. But killing that child is never actually a Christian solution, no matter what situation a woman might be facing. Uh, you know, telling her that it's a, a solution of some kind to enact violence, lethal violence against her child is, is deeply unchristian and, and deeply wrong. I like the phrase that you use throughout the book, and to say I like it is a bit odd, but um, lethal violence, to to subject a child to lethal violence, which is a perfect description of what abortion is. One of the points you make is that we don't really talk about abortion. We use euphemisms, but we don't talk about what actually happens, and we try to distance ourselves from that because I think to confront it face on is perhaps too painful for most people. There are some, of course, who might be the exception. Uh, how how important is it for us to understand precisely what it is we're talking about, what happens in uh, these situations, and whether or not we, f- we frame our uh, opinions based on euphemisms or what's actually happening? Oh, it's vitally important. This is why the other side speaks in euphemism. It's why the other side um, doesn't actually speak clearly and truthfully about what's going on. It's why the other side right now, as we're speaking, is lying about ectopic pregnancy care, lying about miscarriage care to claim that pro-life laws uh, would prohibit care in these cases. It's why they use euphemisms like sex-selective abortion rather than, you know, using accurate language. This is uh, lethal discrimination on the basis of sex. And and it's just so um, fascinating to me that the voices that are loudest in condemning racial discrimination, sex-based discrimination, disability-based discrimination, they go silent or even worse, they cheerlead when it's lethal discrimination on the basis of race, lethal discrimination on the basis of sex, lethal discrimination on the basis of disability, which is what we see when we have uh, more black babies being aborted Mm -hmm. than born in New York City. We have millions of missing girls across the globe. We have countries like Iceland claiming to have eradicated Down syndrome, when in reality they have eradicated people with Down syndrome. They didn't find a cure for the genetic disorder. What they've done is successfully diagnosed and killed all of the um, children diagnosed with Down syndrome. Um, So it's very important that we don't fall for the euphemism um, that the other side uses to talk about these issues, that we speak the truth clearly and compassionately. (laughs) 
Well, I appreciate, too, that you go into the the history and the founding of the abortion movement, that the eugenicist uh, perspective has been successful even in our century in that there's a disproportionate number of Hispanic and African-American babies who are subject to abortions in this country. uh, An inconvenient truth that, uh, again, is overlooked or minimized because this is creating opportunity for for black women moving forward. Yeah, this is a very disturbing argument, and and you see, um, in fact, in the the wake of Roe having been overturned, abortion supporters making the argument that this is disproportionately going to affect uh, non-white populations and women. And and my first thought is, well, if that's true, shouldn't we be supporting these women? Right, the idea that kind of ramping up abortion numbers or, or building more abortion facilities in these neighborhoods is not actually a solution. If if women uh, of color are feeling like they have to choose abortion at higher rates, then that's a, a serious problem in our society. And we should be working to support those women, not just kind of helping them access abortion as much as, as, as uh, you know, Planned Parenthood would like them to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what can pro-life, and we've touched on this a little bit, but pro-life advocates do to make it easier for women to choose life. We've talked about the pregnancy resource centers, but for the individual, what do you recommend? Because uh, I think when they read the book, they're, they're going to want to be proactive and not just better informed. What can we do to help support women? There's an endless variety of things that we can do, and it all depends on what our station in life, our vocation in life is. I mean, for some of us, it's going to be prayer. Actually, for all of us, it should be prayer. (laughs) Um, For many of us, it's going to be a financial contribution. Uh, Look up your local pregnancy resource center and start making a monthly contribution, perhaps volunteering your time at that local pregnancy resource center. Um, Perhaps it's becoming a foster parent. Perhaps it's becoming an adoptive parent. Uh, Perhaps it's, you know, writing that letter to the editor, writing the op-ed for your local newspaper. Perhaps it's lobbying your state representative. It's going to um, the state house and speaking with your elected representatives to make sure that they pass the good laws that will be protecting the unborn babies. Maybe it's working on paid family leave or maternity care. I mean, there's a variety of uh, both kind of supply side and demand side uh, public policies that we can be looking at. The supply side being the abortionist. Uh, the people who supply the lethal action, the demand. Why do women have a demand? Why, why do they think they need abortion? There are public policies that can address that as well. Um, so there really is an, you know, an infinite number of things uh, readers could do after um, finishing the book. And a lot really just depends on what their station in life and their vocation in life is. Well, and again, I want to emphasize that at the conclusion of the book, you offer a number of uh, things to think about in terms of how we can uh, contribute to this new um, this new landscape post row in a state like Oregon. It's definitely an uphill battle, but one that we've been engaged in for for decades and will continue uh, in other parts of the country. There may be um, a restriction on abortion that we could only have dreamed of years ago. So there's plenty of work to be done. And it begins, as you pointed out. Uh, with prayer and then being willing to uh, to move forward in action. I, again, want to thank both of you for the uh, clearly the hard work that you did in putting this book together. And I would suggest that our listeners get a copy of the book, read it and um, purpose to move forward in favor of life. Again, the title is Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. Thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you. Appreciate thank you. It. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I wanted to issue something of a warning that I read about. It has to do with TikTok and some sleuths who noted that users were saving videos of one particular three-year-old girl in concerning numbers. And that really set off a, an alarm bell for many other mothers who are posting pictures on TikTok of their young children because there are, as they put it, sick people out there. Well, a three-year-old girl unknowingly sparked mass social media movement of moms removing public photographs and videos of their children online after online sleuths noticed this disturbing trend. Well, Michaela Music is one of many mothers who recently informed their followers that they're done sharing public content of their kids online. Now, it seems perfectly innocent, and yet we live in... Well, a sinful world. I just saw the posts on TikTok and was absolutely appalled by the story and had decided that I needed to protect my daughter. She told uh, a news outlet, the three-year-old TikTok uh, star at the center of the movement with a username, Ren Eleanor, has more than 17 million followers on a short form video app run by her mother. Now, the account consists of seemingly innocent photos and videos of the blonde-haired, rosy-cheeked toddler doing normal toddler things, as well as some sponsored content. This is what people do these days. But Ren's mother started deleting some content once her followers and other TikTok sleuths noticed that certain videos were being saved by other users in numbers that sparked some concern. The save feature allows users to uh, tag videos so that... Uh, they're easier to find and to refer back to. Well, one user, hashtag facts, noted that a video of this three-year-old wearing a cropped orange shirt uh, was saved more than 45,000 times. A video of this same three-year-old eating certain foods was saved 375,000 times. She also highlighted unsettling comments on the videos and pointed out that popular searches of this little girl's account included phrases like Ren Eleanor Hot Dog or Ren Eleanor Pickle. These were foods she was seen eating in some of the videos, meaning users were frequently searching for videos of the three-year-old. We're talking about a three-year-old eating these foods. Similar popular searches for her appeared on Google. And not only can videos and photos be saved on TikTok and other social media accounts, but predators can also use a smartphone's screen recording feature to record or screenshot content directly to their phones without being traced. Well, since users took note of the abnormal activity on this particular account, some moms like music have taken it upon themselves to delete photos of their children on public social media profiles. Music said that while she doesn't have anywhere um, uh, near the following that this three year old account has, it's her job as a mother to protect her daughter from any potential online predator. And yes, there are many of them out there. Rin's story brought a, hot, a lot of light to all the sick people in the world, the mother explained in an interview. So I decided to remove my daughter's photos from anyone who is not close to the family, close friends. My duty as a mother is to protect her from things like this. I took the initiative to remove her photos before anything like Rin's situation could happen to my daughter, end quote. Well, this mother uh, was both surprised and unsurprised by the concern over the three-year-old's account because she's always known there were sick people in the world that do things, uh, this kind of thing. Uh, she looks at social media in a different light now and won't be posting her daughter's content on social media until she's way older. And one might even caution, should she do it then? Well, the executive director of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, uh, Callahan Walsh, and uh, son, America Most Wanted host John Walsh, 
told uh, Fox News Digital that while social media has become such a pervasive part of our lives, people who use social platforms like TikTok, Facebook, Instagram and others are drawn into this false sense of security due to the positive interactions they have with friends and family and even some strangers who follow their accounts with good intentions or at least they think with good intentions. But parents have to understand that when you're putting this information out to the public, you're opening up your world to the entire outside world. Walsh says anybody on those social media platforms, especially if uh, uh, if your or your uh, a page is public, anybody in the entire world can view and consume the content that you're putting out there, uh, and it can be misused online predators uh, often anonymous and difficult to trace they seek content that typical users may not realize is harmful because they don't go directly to that dark place uh, mr walsh said but there are those who live in that place that's what these predators are searching for he says and because you're putting that content up on social media and you're the one sharing it it's not like they're uh, the ones creating this type of content they're just consuming in ways that you would not approve of. So heads up warning. First of all, TikTok is not a good platform because of the Chinese uh, Communist uh, Party owns and gleans information from it. But if you're going to post these kinds of pictures, narrow your focus to people you actually know and trust rather than uh, potential predators who misuse the images of your innocent children. In this case, a three-year-old, it opens uh, uh, up a child to exploitation, perhaps grooming, luring, online enticement, and all of those things at some point in the future. So a warning being given and moms on TikTok responding as they ought. Well, as we all know, we are in something of a heat wave. We are currently under an excessive heat warning. Portland, um, I think we hit around or maybe over 100 degrees through Thursday of this week. Today, the forecast was 102. Tomorrow, the forecast 102. Thursday, the forecast 102. Friday, the forecast 102. And then a cool 96 on Saturday and Sunday. Things will cool off Monday as well. But Portland hit 99 degrees yesterday and um, uh, exceeded 100 today uh, and possibly through Friday. The uh, Portland area is under an excessive heat warning through Thursday at 9 p.m. Overnight lows will also be very warm, generally staying above 65 degrees all week. Afternoon valley humidity factors uh, will range from 20 to 30 percent, producing a heat index of one to three degrees cooler than the actual air temperature. The sky, they tell us, is going to remain pretty clear all week, except at the coast, which will see morning fog and much cooler temperatures. So you might want to spend some time there uh, with highs in the 60s, 70s and mid 80s. Somewhat of a cool um, season is coming, but that's not right now. Again, we are in an excessive heat warning period in effect through Thursday, at least, and possibly Friday when they uh, predict, at least at this point, that we may have temperatures triple digits as well. So stay cool. We arrived in the building earlier today and there was some sort of mishap with the fire alarm, which shut down the uh, uh, air conditioning system. So we had to live with a little bit of, in fact, is it working now? Sam, do you know if it's back up and working? Yeah. I, yeah, I, th- I think it is up and working now, but we uh, received emails and phone calls saying dress, uh, dress coolly because it's uh, going to be warm in the office. In any event, make sure your neighbors are well taken care of. Keep, uh, keep yourself safe, well hydrated and, um, uh, Hope you'll join us here again tomorrow. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.